KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. On this Earth Day, a new technology to fight climate change. So the technology is, is absolutely there. The concerns now, I think, have shifted to the costs. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. After the guilty verdict, what legal challenges remain in the George Floyd case? Although the verdict has been rendered, this is not the end. In the coming weeks, the court will determine sentencing, and later this summer, we expect to present another case. A new creative space blossoms in southeast San Diego. And this weekend, Shakespeare's Hamlet becomes a radio play on KPBS. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. As President Biden and leaders around the world engage in a climate summit on this Earth Day, the focus is reducing carbon emissions. Leaders are discussing ways to slash CO2 emissions as quickly as possible to avoid a disastrous increase in global warming. But some scientists are now saying the only way to achieve a limit to global temperature rise is to pair emission reduction efforts with a massive investment in carbon capture technology, basically removing some of the existing CO2 concentrations already in the atmosphere. Joining me is Ryan Hanna. He's assistant research scientist at UC San Diego, lead author of a paper on the emergency deployment of direct air capture as a response to the climate crisis. And Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Now, I remember speaking to a climate scientist several years ago about the idea of using technology to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And at the time, it was treated a little bit like science fiction. Do we have the technology now to remove CO2 from the atmosphere? We do. It, it sounds like science fiction, but it's actually based in a process that is mature, well-known, and has been used in the oil and gas industry for, for decades. It's the process of capturing CO2 either from, from natural geologic sources or from industrial sources. Um, from a high level, it's quite simple. It, it just involves using uh, organic compounds that selectively absorb CO2 from, from gas streams. And so what you get out the back end is on the one hand, a pure CO2 stream that you can use, whether it goes to underground storage to address climate change concerns. In the, in the past, it's gone to agriculture, food and beverage industries. So, so you get pure CO2 on the one hand, and then a relatively depleted uh, stream of atmospheric gases that are mostly free of CO2 that goes back to the atmosphere. So, so the technology is, is absolutely there. The concerns now, I think, have shifted to the costs. But do we know after that carbon is extracted from the atmosphere and the idea is to safely store it 
under the Earth, would it be safe there? Would it be safe for the planet? Geologists, are, I think, are, are pretty confident with, with underground storage. We have a lot of experience with, with injecting gases into depleted oil and, and gas reservoirs. Of course, there's, there's always the chance that leakage can occur. And so there's significant monitoring. Well, well the, the, first of all, there's characterization of the geologic formations into which the, the, the gases are injected prior to injection. But, but then during injections, there's also extensive monitoring of the reservoir and of the plume once it's, it's underground. We, we have experience with injections through a couple of different processes. Actually, the CO2 has been injected into old oil and gas reservoirs to, to, to basically in, increase production at the end of the uh, reservoir's life in, in a process called enhanced oil recovery. That's been, that's been happening for decades. Um, more recently, with tests around dedicated storage to address climate change, um, we have been injecting uh, CO2 into uh, saline reservoirs, uh, for example, in, in, in Illinois, there, there's, there's been ongoing injections and, and characterization for the past several years. And, and so I, I think the consensus amongst geologists is that, is that we're confident that, that with monitoring, these reservoirs can store gases off you know, on the timescales that matter for climate change. So you said one of the big issues right now is the money it would take. And, and what kind of money would it take to deploy direct air capture technology to make a significant difference in climate change? Yeah, the, the short answer is, is we don't quite know yet because no major commercial plant has been built. We, we have a few, a few pilot plants and those give us some initial numbers that could be indicative of, of what larger, in fact, much larger plants might do. But the reality is we, we simply don't know, e even at very high costs of storing CO2 through carbon capture and direct air capture. What we do know is that the climate modeling and the energy systems modeling that the IPCC carries out sh shows us that having these options, even at very high costs, reduces the overall cost of the decarbonization challenge in the long run. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that the cost of direct air capture of taking CO2 out of the air would be cost effective because the cost of reducing emissions alone to try to achieve the same level of carbon reduction would be more expensive. Is that right? That's absolutely right. One way to think about direct air capture and other uh, technologies, what we call negative emissions technologies that actually reduce CO2 uh, out of the atmosphere, is, is that they act as, as a backstop against all of the conventional mitigation that needs to happen in all of the economic sectors. So in, in, in for any economic sector, one can look at the cost of decarbonizing that sector. So for example, cement production or steel production, which are very hard to decarbonize, or aviation, for example, for which we don't really know what the solutions are going to be and what their costs are going to be. We, we can, on the other hand, look to these negative emissions technologies as a backstop and say, well, if the negative emissions technologies are cheaper or appear to be less costly than going in, into the sector and decarbonizing it, then it would make sense to preferentially go with the negative emissions options instead, for, simply from a cost perspective. How much carbon could these negative emissions options take out of the atmosphere? In, in theory, it, it could do quite a lot. The, the Intergovernmental Panel on 
climate change, which is the main international body uh, that, that does all of the, the, the modeling and, and scenario work that kind of tells us um, how, how quickly we need to reduce em emissions overall, tells us that we will need something on the order of 200 to 1,000 gigatons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere. That's on the order of, at the low end, five to six years of, of global emissions, on the high end, 20 to 25 years of global emissions over the century. And so we know there's absolutely a need for these, for these different means of negative emissions, um, and really the sky is the limit for them. But this is not the whole solution, right? We still need to decrease our emissions. 100%. There's no way around that. Conventional mitigation, actually getting the emissions out of the economic sectors, in addition to negative emissions, those need to be seen as complements. So where are CO2 levels now in relation to the goals set by the Paris Accord? Uh, I think they were hoping to limit warming to about one and a half degrees centigrade. Where are we now? Right now, uh, because of the inertia of the climate system, with our existing emissions baked in about one degree centigrade of, of warming already. And that's obviously set to increase. The best estimates that we have for, for warming based on sort of where we are now and where we think we're going to go in the, in the future with emissions given current policies, that puts us on track for something like three degrees of warming by the end of the century. So that's, that's obviously too high and dangerous. And so the challenge to, to stop that is, is, is immense, as, as we know. Every month or, or year of delay in addressing climate change really just compounds the challenge because we've let more emissions into the atmosphere, which means the task of taking those out later becomes greater. What does it mean if we go higher than that one degree, up to even the three degrees that you mentioned? What does that mean to life on Earth? I think the important way to think about global warming is that every increment or incremental degree is worse than the increment bef before it. And so it's a spectrum. You know, life on earth doesn't cease at 1.6 degrees where it exists at 1.4. And the same is true at two degrees and three degrees. Rather, the damages and the effects to human civilization are, are worsened with each in in incremental degree. And so the way that we think about the thresholds is uh, as a target, as a way to, to sort of focus the mind. But the damages, of course, are continuous rather than, say, binary or discrete. As temperatures rise, what changes would we see? I think a few of the major changes involve warming in the, in the Arctic and the poles especially, which, which see drastically higher impacts than the rest of the the earth to, to warming. So, so certainly glacial melt at the poles, uh, ice cap melt at the poles, thawing of permafrost. I think to, to human systems, the warming adds to potential threats of my, migration and movement of different peoples due to the, to the additional warming and to the effects that come with that, that affects, for example, their, their livelihoods, whether that has to do with crops or water availability. Do you have hope that this week's climate summit will address the subject of direct air capture and maybe move that idea forward? I think the idea has, has come into the mainstream scientifically. It's hard for me to say whether it's in the mainstream 
publicly, but I think the idea that negative emissions are critical to the solution is now, I think, well, well accepted. And various, various groups, whether they're, whether they're scientists in labs or whether they're NGOs or think tanks, are calling for massive government investment in these technologies. And so I do have hope that these efforts into improving and proving out the potential for these negative emissions technologies will emerge over the next decade. I have been speaking with Ryan Hanna, an assistant research scientist at UC San Diego. Ryan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Maureen. In celebration of this week's Earth Day, I Love a Clean San Diego is hosting an all-day cleanup on Saturday. You can choose a block, a park, beach, canyon, or neighborhood near you and remove trash to make sure it doesn't end up in our ocean. To register, go to creektobay.org. far-reaching could the verdict in the Chauvin trial be? After one day of deliberation, the jury in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin delivered a guilty verdict on all three counts, including second-degree unintentional murder, which carries a maximum sentence of 40 years in prison. Here's Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Although the verdict has been rendered, this is not the end. In the coming weeks, the court will determine sentencing And later this summer, we expect to present another case. The guilty verdict could set a new legal precedent for police accountability involving in-custody deaths. And now the Justice Department is opening an investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department for unlawful or unconstitutional policing. Joining me to break down the specifics of the verdict and possible sentence is criminal defense attorney Eugene Iredale of Iredale and UAPC. Eugene, welcome. Thank you, Jake. So can you break down the three specific charges Chauvin uh, was found guilty of and what differentiates second and third degree murder from second degree manslaughter? Yes, I can do that, Jade. I need to start by telling you that the Minnesota degrees of homicide are very different from the law of homicide here in California. What they call second-degree murder is very close to our first-degree felony murder. He was convicted of second-degree murder, which is a killing that is perpetrated in the course of the commission of another felony. And the felony specifically that was the underlying felony was a felony assault on the person of George Floyd, which resulted in his death. That's what they call second-degree murder. In California, we would call it something else, first-degree felony murder. In Minnesota, they have a third-degree murder. We don't have that in California. We have only two degrees of murder. Their third-degree murder is the same or very close to what we call second-degree murder, which is uh, depraved indifference, abandoned and malignant heart, doing something with reckless disregard to human life with that action resulting in death. That's their third degree murder that he was also convicted of. And then third and finally, they convicted him of second degree manslaughter, which is a killing or a death that results from reckless conduct that causes death with a high degree of negligence. 
which is very close to our involuntary manslaughter here in California. Each count carries a different maximum sentence, and prosecutors in the case said they'll seek a sentence that goes above the typical guideline range. On what grounds will they do that? As I understand it, the guideline range for someone without a previous record is 12 and a half years for the second degree murder charge. They can seek an enhancement and have indicated that they will seek an enhancement for abuse of position, a victim who was in an especially vulnerable position, and for cruelty in the conduct that resulted in the death. What factors do you think will ultimately affect the length of Chauvin's sentence? I think three things. The first is the judge's perception from the trial of the egregiousness of the conduct. The second is the defendant's attitude, Mr. Chauvin's attitude, and what he chooses to say or not to say, whether he fully accepts responsibility and expresses contrition, whether he gives some explanation or something that mitigates the apparent callousness of the conduct. Whether he shows that he is truly sorry, whether he shows that he appreciates the magnitude and the metaphorical and national significance of this case, and does something that a defendant can do to express remorse and to attempt reconciliation by saying, in a sincere way, I am sorry. I acknowledge the wrongness of my conduct. And then the third thing is something that everybody will try to avoid saying it influences the result, but which will inevitably influence the sentence as it, I believe, influenced the verdict and the rapidity of the verdict, which is the public attention and the public significance of the case and how the actors in the trial perceive its effect will be on the future, not only in this case, but in other cases, even though it is supposed to be narrowly uh, imposed only in this case. Some legal experts are expecting an appeal to the guilty verdict. What would that process look like? Of course, there will be appeal. 100% there will be appeal. And on the basis of the briefs, which are written documents, the Court of Appeals in Minnesota will have an oral argument, which will, I am sure, go far longer than the average oral argument in a criminal case, and which the judges will question the attorneys as to their legal arguments, as to the soundness of their position, as to the facts undergirding those arguments as to the relief they are seeking and as to the applicability of precedent within the state of Minnesota and uh, any federal court law that would be applicable. And based on that oral argument, which even in this case is not likely to go longer than two or three hours, uh, that panel of judges will then make a decision resulting in a written ruling. And I have to preface this by saying I am not an expert in the appellate process in Minnesota. I believe that there's an intermediate appellate court which would decide the case, and then there would be a review by the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, And whether that's a discretionary or mandatory review of the lower appellate court's decision, I don't know. 
I've been speaking with criminal defense attorney Eugene Iredale of Iredale and UAPC. Eugene, thank you very much for joining us. Well, Jade, thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The Tijuana River Valley is frequently swamped with sewage-tainted water, but those cross-border flows also carry trash into an ecologically sensitive region. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says people on both sides of the border are working to get the trash problem under control. Chris Peregrine walks down a gentle slope in Goat Canyon, just north of the U.S.-Mexico border. He points to a thick steel cable that spans the basin that the cross-border flows frequently fill. Yeah, we have an anchor on either side and, um, and then a heavy-duty heavy cable that connects the, um, the trash boom and lets it span across the entire sediment basin. The trash boom is fencing that's designed to stop everything that floats There are tires here and there, but plastics dominate the trash. Single-use plastic bottles pile up near the barrier, but that's not all. We're also seeing quite a bit of foam. You can see that there's a couple different types of foam here. This is a typical polystyrene. But then also, um, we see a lot of this type of insulation-type foam. The trash boom was installed in 2005 to keep sediment and the garbage from fouling the nearby Tijuana River estuary. We're about, um, we're about a half mile away from an area that is, um, has uh, saltwater influence of the estuary right now. If the sand and trash were allowed to flow unchecked into that area, it could completely choke off the ability of the habitat to function. That mixing, that saltwater coming in on high tide and going out on the low tide, and that, that saltwater mixing with the freshwater of the Tijuana River, is what makes this place so biologically diverse and and so special. Peregrine says state officials allow the plastics and sediments to accumulate and then they bring in heavy equipment to remove the trash and scrape off a layer of sediment. The battle against the trash is also being waged in a Tijuana community that's about a mile south of the border. It's basically a canyon where people have settled and it goes all the way up and it has three different names. Los Laureles, and then Alacranes, and Las Flores. It's one tributary. Faye Crevache of Wild Coast says an international grant allowed the community there to build a trash boom inside a concrete sediment collector. The idea is to stop the garbage from even reaching the United States. And it's stopping the sediment and trash that comes floating with the water and also underwater. Wild Coast's Rosario Norizagarre is helping organize the effort in Mexico. She trades small food items for plastics in an effort to create an economic incentive to pick up the trash. And they urge the community members to protect themselves if they go into the concrete collector. Yes, 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 yes. Per the rules, per the protocol, the team that arrives to work specifically in the area of the desander must wear safety equipment. 
She's teaching the community how to manage the trash boom, but that's only part of the equation. The community has to raise awareness regarding such a change of habits, a change in behaviors, and how they are currently handling their waste and how it directly creates the contamination problem in the estuary. Even with those efforts, the estuary on the U.S. side of the border remains under assault. Every time it rains, trash flows down the Tijuana River Valley, the main channel, as Peregrine calls it. There is no formal facility here to capture trash. So in Goat Canyon, we can clean the trash out of an area with heavy equipment. But when you come to an area like this, that's currently supporting nesting species right in amongst these trash flows, it becomes very challenging to clean up. And while the trash is tough to clean up in the thick riparian habitat, it doesn't necessarily stay here in the heavy brush near Dairy Mart Road. It's going to start making its way further downstream. As it makes its way downstream, it breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces. And ultimately, it's working its way out into the environment in the ocean. Peregrine hopes that a combination of efforts around the estuary and in Mexico will help reduce the amount of trash that finds its way into the valley. And keeping the trash out of the delicate habitat could go a long way toward allowing the area to be the natural refuge it was intended to be. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. When the pandemic started, artists had to reconcile with the fact that their ability to publicly display their creative endeavors in person would all but disappear. Well, now with galleries and museums reopening, many in the arts world are rejoicing. However, there are still a number of neglected communities in San Diego that suffer from a lack of creative spaces. In a story first covered by the San Diego Union-Tribune, one Southeast San Diego resident sought to remedy that problem by opening the Cali Arts Connect Arts and Culture Center in Choice View. Kim Phillips P., president of the Southeast Art Team, collaborated with a property owner of a vacant one-story residential building to turn the space into a creative oasis for arts in the area. And she joins us now. Kim, welcome. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So first, what led you and your team to open this art center? Well, uh, just like you said, a lack of creative spaces in the area always left us having to borrow space. We would go to parks. We would go to Malcolm X Library, um, which was no problem because we enjoyed being there. But there is always, like we know, no place like home. So we wanted a permanent location with a rooftop where we could be protected. Just having the indoor location where we could choose to be indoors or outdoors was just the perfect remedy and solution for us. And what role has community involvement played in in setting up this space? Well, we've collaborated with Lincoln High School. Uh, They've got a group called Black Girls United. And recently they won a grant to install a mural in the community. And they reached out to us, Southeast Art Team. And we were able to not only provide the location, but we helped them through the process of drawing out their mural, which was a beautiful Brianna Taylor. We helped them go to Home Depot and buy the paint. And the manager of Home Depot loved the project so much, he ended up donating all of 
of the supplies to Black Girls United, which allowed us, you know, to have even more fun with the murals. So as you can see, we have our arms locked together, not only to build the space, but to also make sure that our youth, our teenagers and artists all have a collective place where we can all work and grow together. You mentioned the mural of Breonna Taylor, you know, and with so much in the news this week, even regarding the trial of Derek Chauvin. Uh, it's important to note that so much of the commemoration of figures important to the racial justice movement has been in public art pieces like murals or, or street art. Has the ongoing focus on racial justice in America had a big impact on your work or the work of your colleagues? We have just been very happy to be able to play a role. Um, as we know, in our communities, it's not necessarily easy to get the approval from business owners. We don't own a lot of businesses, so we don't have a lot of say-so and control over what images we see in our neighborhoods and on our walls. So we're very fortunate and thankful to have a space where we're able to control the narrative and tell the stories that we want to tell. We're thankful that Lincoln High School and Black Girls United um, reached out to us because we want to be able to uh, have our voices heard because there's so much to be said, you know, and our young people, they have a voice. So this place that we've created is just that, a location where they can come for creativity and expression during these times. And, you know, you've said that you identify a distinct lack of creative spaces in Southeast San Diego for artists. How do you hope that this new center will, will help to change that? Well, it already has the feedback and the response has just been so positive. We've gotten requests to create more murals. We have other community members who have inquired about how they can transform their spaces. The Southeast Art Team has also collaborated with Jacob Center, Community for Neighborhood Innovation in Southeastern San Diego. At Market Creek Plaza, we have a pop-up art gallery that has been open since October. And then um, the Elks Lodge, which is located at 6 Hensley Street, has also agreed to collaborate with the art team to open another art gallery. So as you can see, um, it is just super inspiring when we see the empowerment and just how uplifted everyone in our community is by the artwork and just by the collaboration of artists and creative energy. So when people come to this arts space, what exactly do they see? What will you find when you walk through there? So at the art space, you'll see a range of art um, from abstract art to a, like acrylic pours to tributes to our local hip hop stars and also celebrity hip hop. You'll also see tributes to our ancestors. It depends on the artist that has contributed the work, their style, their, you know, how they were feeling at the time that they created the work. We've got a door that's painted in a Mother Nature theme. You'll also see a huge giraffe that I painted a couple years ago for a solo show. We want this to be sort of like a mini World Beat Center. We're very inspired by Makeda Dread and all the artwork and creativity that surrounds the World Beat Center. So this is that same type of feeling and space where everywhere you look, it's just surrounded by artwork. I've been speaking with Kim Phillips P, president of the Southeast Art Team and owner of Cali Artist Connect Arts and Culture Center in Choyous View. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much again. And thanks so much to our entire community for supporting us. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Pack Arts Spring Showcase had to skip last year because of the pandemic, but this year it's taking place all online. The showcase kicks off tomorrow, and KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Pack Arts artistic director Brian Hu about what to expect from the virtual festival. Brian, you are about to kick off the 10th Spring Showcase for the San Diego Asian Film Festival. What is it like kicking this off in the midst of both the pandemic and a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes that we're seeing? I mean, like after doing this for so many years, it's sort of like, all right, well, spring's coming. Let's put together a Spring Showcase. But this year felt feels all different. It feels like we need to do this now. And part of it is, is like, it's a way to tell our, our loyal fans, hey, like we haven't gone anywhere. We may have skipped a year. Um, but the, the pandemic has created challenges. Films aren't, aren't as available as they used to be. And then of course the anti-Asian attacks that have been very visible remind us that perhaps we need to be thinking about our visibility as a, as a film festival as a way to combat the dehumanizing images that we often see, or just to show, especially to other Asian Americans, that there's plenty that we can still be joyous about, that we can kind of commune over. That was the spirit in which we put together this program. We had already discussed this sidebar you're doing, which is Songs Our Elders Taught Me, which addresses the fact that a lot of older Asian Americans have been the victims of some of this anti-Asian hate. But you also have another sidebar focus, which is on Hawaiian documentaries called Sovereign Cinema. So what is this program going to be about? Yeah, I'm very excited about this program. I mean, like we, we often think about like who are the masters of documentary around the world, like, like the Errol Morrises and Werner Herzogs. But we never think about the Pacific Islands in quite the same way. And perhaps it's because documentarians there have different things on their minds than, I don't know, like like copying Frederick Wiseman or something, right? It, it could be about trying to make films that say something about their their culture, their society, their politics. And when we when we're taking that angle, I discovered that there is a, a I mean a film collective that's been around for decades called Namaka Okaina, and the directors are Puhi Pao and Joan Lander, and they've been making like the most incisive, committed political documentaries that I've that I've seen kind of anywhere in the world. Let's let's make these films better known. And the timing is kind of right. Uh, one of their films, uh, Mauna Kea Temple Under Siege, was recently inducted into the National Film Registry, which is kind of, for me, kind of ironic because part of the, the whole mission of these films is to like disassociate themselves with the U.S. national government. Uh, but it's still like quite a, a moment for Hawaiian cinema to get that kind of recognition. Um, Joan Lander is is still around, and she's going to join us for a panel. And so, yeah, a big part of this is really claiming that there are auteurs beyond the usual ones that we are so used to. And some of these documentaries go back quite a ways. There's one from the 90s. And I think it's fair to warn people, you know, there's some very early video technology and Chiron going on here. But if you look past it, the amount of information that's contained in there is really fascinating and stuff that we don't get to hear about very often. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right, right? I mean, these films are dense. I mean, we should call them videos, right? They really are videos rather than films. And I think these makers, when they were making them, they thought of themselves as video makers rather than filmmakers. But yeah, you're right. 
it, it's so dense with information and information that I sort of knew, but the details are actually much more revelatory than the conclusions. We all know the conclusion. We all know how the story ends, that Hawaii becomes a part of the United States, becomes a 50th state. But what are the, the weird machinations that led to this moment? And once you know those things, it changes your entire like perspective on Hawaii's notion of sovereignty. Now, I think people sometimes forget that a country like Iran is considered part of this Asian cinema that you're looking at. And I was so happy to see a film by Majid Majidi, Sun Children. And I feel like it's been too long since I've seen an Iranian film. And this one is great. It's so good. I mean, Majid Majidi, like he, he was one of the like shining lights of Iranian cinema about 20 years ago. This is his, like, he's back in a big way. And I think a lot of people, their perspective, their, their, their perceptions of Iranian cinema are often about poverty, poor kids in the streets, and, and some children is, but he has the spin on it, which is a heist film. It's still grounded in realism, but it, there's like, a, it's, it's has this jolt of energy of like a, are they going to find the treasure that makes us really stand out, not just in Iranian cinema, but for Asian cinema more broadly. And I want to end on what is always my favorite note of the festival, something I look forward to, which is your mystery kung fu theater. And as the title implies, you may not be able to reveal much, but give people who are unfamiliar with this a sense of what they can expect. As you know very well, uh, mystery kung fu theater was conceived a few, a, probably a decade ago now, or soon to be a decade. Like there are all these like classic. Or and and I mean and not so great also like old martial art films that are best consumed or appreciated in a movie theater with a bunch of other people and so so we all sit together we can all hear and feel each other's reactions to movies that are sometimes very violent sometimes like inadvertently funny and so much of the energy comes from each other as much as it's emanating from the screen and the pandemic is has not been kind to these kinds of events. But what we discovered last year um, at our film festival, which is also virtual, was it's a reminder that this whole discovery of martial arts films, especially amongst our generation, it happened via video anyways. It happened in our homes. It happened through like broadcasts of um, what we, they call like Kung Fu theater on television. And so why not, why not evoke the, the home context of this um, in doing mystery Kung Fu theater? And, and I think our audience is going to have a blast with it. With the two films that we've chosen for this program, it's going to be a double feature um, that you can watch from home. And it's going to be live streamed via Twitch. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the Spring Showcase. All right. Thank you, as always. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Pack Arts Brian Hu. The Spring Showcase runs this Friday through May 2nd with all events happening online. This weekend, Shakespeare's classic play Hamlet gets a pandemic-era refresh of an old art form, the radio drama. The Old Globe worked with actors from their 2017 stage production and expert sound crews to transform the work into an audio production for KPBS audiences. The Globe's artistic director, Barry Edelstein, joined KPBS arts editor Julia Dixon-Evans to discuss how they pulled it off and why Hamlet is still relevant now. Barry... You're a Shakespeare scholar, and Hamlet is arguably the most famous play of all time. Can you tell us something we might not know about this play, or, or even something that we think we know but keep getting wrong? 
Hamlet is a play that continues to reveal new things about itself each time you return to it. So I have found, coming back to it now, four years after we did it outside at the Lowell Davies Festival stage, that I hear different resonances. And uh, that's because I've changed. So the thing I would say about it, and I think one could say this of any great masterpiece of literature of, of another great Shakespeare play like King Lear or something like that, is that they become partners in our journey through life because they have a seeming endlessness about them. And coming back to this play in the middle of the pandemic, themes in the play about loneliness and isolation and loss and grief seem more prominent than they did four years ago. And I would imagine that 10 years from now, when I pick up the play and read it again, I'll find all kinds of other resonances in it. And that's one of the things I think that has given it its ability to endure over the centuries, is that it always has more layers, more levels, more depths to reveal of itself. And what is something you were mindful of in producing this classical play right now in this mid-pandemic, in this continuing racial and social justice crisis, this new and, and evolving society? I, I mean, beyond having to do it for the radio, but things like, like the style, the tone, and the nuance. When we did the show in 2017, over half the company were actors of color. The entire royal family is black. Hamlet is black. The king, the queen, the ghost of his father. Um, the, our MFA actor training program, which we run with the University of San Diego, is in most years, and I think now over 50% actors of color. So at the time in 2017, the production was notable for the diversity of representation on stage. And it also happened to be the most successful Shakespeare at the box office in the history of the Old Globe and the first Shakespeare in the Globe's 85 year history to sell more than a million dollars worth of tickets. So it has an important place in the life of the Old Globe in that it demonstrates that diversity and public success go hand in hand. And we knew we wanted to capture that in the radio version, in particular in light of the upheavals of 2020 and the great reckoning that institutions like the Globe are doing with questions of equity, diversity, inclusion, access, belonging. We felt that this Hamlet put the Globe's best foot forward and demonstrated to our audience, both live and on the radio, that Shakespeare is for everyone, that the experience gets more rich, the wider the diversity that it can embrace. The actor who will play Hamlet, Grantham Coleman, performed in this role with the Old Globe in 2017. And we have a clip from a recent interview where he talked about what changes he made between those massive outdoor sets with uh, 40 performances to making this into a radio play. We played around very early on with, is this the very intimate, very close to the microphone, Hamlet inside his mind, Lord's <laughs> Olivier production, or do we hold true to what worked on stage, which was loud and, and, and aggressive and fast? Um, and we realized that the best is, is always going to be a mix. It's always going to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. 
So that's Grantham Coleman in a recent interview he did with The Globe. Can you expand on that a little bit about making radio? Grantham is one of the most exciting classical actors we have in the United States. After doing Hamlet at the Globe in 2017, he went on to star in Much Ado About Nothing at Shakespeare in the Park in Central Park in New York City. He's got just an exploding career, and uh, it's been such an honor to do this work with him and to watch him adjust to this medium. The microphone is a strange thing. It it will lure you into a sense of um, intimacy and quiet and closeness. And that is extremely fun and, and in its own way expressive. And as Grantham said, we did a lot of experimentation and thought, well, why don't we take advantage of the medium that we're in and try and exploit the fact that the microphone can draw the audience closer to us than they're able to get outdoors. And Barry, do you have a favorite line or a scene from Hamlet? I do. There's a line that's been ricocheting through my head in particular in the last couple of weeks because Governor Newsom has announced that on June 15th, all the pandemic restrictions are going to be lifted and we're all going to be able to start to return to things we remember, full houses, full of audiences watching a live performance. And as we put those plans in motion, this one line of Hamlet where he says, the readiness is all. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Barry, thank you so much. Thank you. That's the Old Globe's Barry Edelstein speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Hamlet on the radio will air on KPBS in two parts this weekend to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday and death day. Tune in Friday at 7 p.m. for part one and Saturday at 7 for part two. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.